And this evening we continue our study in the last part of chapter 6 and we're on the topic of Christian warfare. In these last few verses of this chapter, uh, Paul is addressing the Ephesians uh, and making an appeal to them about being soldiers of the Lord. Sometimes we might think, where does Paul come up with these kinds of analogies that he uses? And there are many people who believe that at the time that Paul wrote Ephesians that it could have been very likely that right at that time he was chained to a Roman soldier. And so he could look over at that Roman soldier and he could see the different types of armaments that he had on, uh, the weapons that he had. And who knows, but the Holy Spirit might not have laid it on his heart right then to just think about this, that the Christian life is really like being in a warfare. And there are certain things that we must put on, we must gird ourselves with these things in order to fight in this warfare. So he might have looked at that soldier and thought, well, here's what we need to do. We need to put on these different pieces of armament. Well, we're not fighting with physical weapons. And of course, Paul was aware of that. And so he talks about a spiritual warfare. We don't fight with physical weapons because we're not fighting against physical weapons. If Satan had RPGs and M16s and things like that, then we would make sure that we had better weapons than he has. But he's not using those, but he is using weapons. Only his weapons are spiritual in nature, and he uses weapons that are very wide and varied. Here the scripture calls them wiles. And as we spoke last week, that word wiles simply means tricks, trickery. Comes from the word methodeus, which is the same word from which we get methods and uh, also strategies. So these are the stratagems, the methods of the devil that he uses against us. One of the things that the devil uses is doubt. And last week we talked about doubt. Uh, The devil tries to put into your mind doubts about your salvation. He makes you wonder whether you've really been converted to Christ. When there are troubles that come into your life, he makes you doubt about those. And he tries to convince you that if you're really a child of God, you shouldn't have any problems at all. So if you have problems, you must not be saved. He has doubts that he puts into your mind about failures. When you get into sin that you seem like you can't get out of, habitual sins that you commit, and Also, when you fall into the so-called big sins, then the devil comes to you and he says, well, no Christian would ever do anything like that, so you couldn't possibly be a Christian. So these are all different kinds of of strategies and wilds, methods that the devil uses, and he uses those to try to make you to become ineffective in your Christian life. Now, that's what Paul's talking about in verse number 11 of this text. This evening, we're going to talk a little bit more about this as we uh, talk more about the wiles of the devil. So let's stand, if you would, please. We're just going to read this one verse of Scripture. This is our text verse for this evening. Uh, Chapter 6, verse number 11. Put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, the time we have to spend together. Help us, Lord, as we look into your word tonight that we might see very clearly what you want us to do and how we can avoid uh, these tricks of the devil. And Lord, help us that we might fight him off, defend off the attacks by putting on the whole armor of God. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Speaking about verse number 11, I, I just started 
today writing uh, some messages that will deal with these particular parts of the armament. We'll get to those in about a month from now. But uh, uh, I enjoyed writing about that first message that talks about putting on, uh, uh, girding our loins with truth and that very important thing that is for us to do. But last week we talked about doubt. Uh, Tonight we're going to talk about three specific areas where the devil attacks us. And I like to call these the wiles of confusion. And I call it this because the devil really tries to confuse us over certain issues. Now we read here in in chapter 6, Paul says that we wrestle not against flesh and blood. And then Paul talks about powers and he talks about rulers of darkness. And sometimes we think that the battle that we're engaged in is against people that are atheist. That's who we're fighting, or we're fighting the godless philosophies and philosophers of the world. We're fighting against false teachers and against false preachers. And certainly that is involved in our spiritual struggle. But we're talking tonight more about what Satan does with an inner conflict. And this is where Satan comes and he messes with your mind and he tries to keep you in confusion. So there are three specific areas I want to talk about tonight. And the question is asked, are these things sin? And so that's how we're going to look at these three things this evening. So you might be confused about this. The first one is, is it a sin to be tempted? Is it a sin to be tempted? Has the mind of a Christian been purified when he receives Christ as the Savior? Should he be tempted to sin or not be tempted to sin? Or, or, or is there something wrong with him if he is? And I know that there are many Christians that struggle with this because I've counseled with people who've come into the office and, and they sit down and they say, why do I still have these urges? Why do I still have those same desires that I had before I was saved? And why is it so hard for me to overcome these different temptations? And so they begin to doubt about this and they think, well, if temptations come into my mind, does that mean that there's something wrong in my Christian experience? Have I really not accepted Christ? Well, the first thing that we need to realize about temptation and about salvation is, number one, the sinful nature has not yet been destroyed. The sinful nature has not been eradicated in man. Now, believers don't become perfect uh, when they're saved. And if they were supposed to be perfect, then every time that the devil came against us and and he had a charge to make or an accusation to make, we'd have no way to answer him. I mean, if Christians are supposed to be perfect and we sin, the obvious conclusion is we can't be Christians. Well, there's a very clear answer to this we have in Scripture because Paul and other New Testament writers warn about this. They warn about believers falling into sin. And they talk about fighting against sin. And so if it were impossible for a Christian person to sin, then there wouldn't be any need of these warnings. Now, here, though, is the real reason why that sinful nature has not been destroyed and why we have to constantly fight against falling into sin. That's because, secondly, the fleshly body has not been redeemed. Every one of us is still in the body. When you get saved, your soul and your spirit, they are immediately redeemed. And, of course, that's what gives you the ability to to follow Christ and to live for Him. You're given a new nature. Scripture says that you become a new creature in Christ. But those things relate to the immaterial part of man. It's talking about the spiritual part of man. But the body is still here. The flesh is still with us, and it's not yet been redeemed. This is what Paul says in Romans chapter 6. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Listen to verse 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body 
that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. And so the implication there is that it's the body where sin is played out. It's the flesh or it's the body that gives wings to sin, so to speak. And without this fleshly body, our sins would not have any way to manifest itself. And so that's why Paul writes in the next verse, Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. And so we fight this, this body living in sin, and we don't want our members to partake of sin. James also tells us, James chapter 1, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. So those verses tell us that there is still the possibility of sin. There's still lust in our body. And then when sin is entertained, uh, when lust are entertained, rather, sin is the result of that. And the problem here, the central problem is still, the body hasn't yet been redeemed. The soul and the spirit are saved, but the body is still waiting on its final salvation. Now, that's what Paul says in Romans 8, verses 22 and 23. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit the redemption of our body. So here's the problem. The body's not yet redeemed. Now there Paul says that we have the first fruits of the Spirit. And what that means is that God has given us a personal guarantee by putting the Holy Spirit into us. That's a pledge that this body will one day be redeemed. Now, God hasn't forgotten about the body. He's got the spirit, he's got the soul, but he hasn't forgotten about the body. Now, our bodies will be redeemed when there is a resurrection of this body. When our bodies die, they go into the grave, but then the body at that point has still not been redeemed. It's not until Christ comes. And when he comes and he calls those bodies out of the grave, then he redeems the body. Our bodies will be taken into heaven and reunited with our spirit, and that will be a glorified body. So as long as we're in the body, the devil has something to work with, and he's able to tempt us. And if you ever stop being tempted, pinch yourself. You're not alive if you're not being tempted. Now notice also that it's not a sin to be tempted, because Christ was tempted. Jesus was the incarnate Son of God. He never committed a sin, but he was tempted. Now, I want you to understand something. When, when I say that Christ was tempted to sin, I don't want you to think in the way that we normally think about this. We may say, well, I'm tempted to do that. And when we think like that, we're actually saying, or what we mean is, I'm entertaining the thought that I might actually go ahead and do this thing that's wrong. Well, when the Bible talks about Jesus being tempted to sin, he was never, he was never entertaining the thought of actually entering into sin. He would never do that. But that didn't stop the devil from coming to him and still trying to tempt him. He tempted him in the wilderness. And you can read that story in Matthew chapter 4. There's the temptation of Christ. But then the scriptures also say about Jesus in Hebrews chapter 4, For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Temptation is a fact of the human nature. And since Jesus was fully human and fully God, he was able to be tempted. 
But of course, the temptation itself could not be a sin, because if that's so, then Christ could not have remained sinless. So when you're tempted to do things, don't, don't think that there's something wrong with you. Uh, don't think that salvation is in question, because the devil is, is able to put some kind of enticement into your mind. David was fearful from falling into sin, so here's what he wrote. I will set no wicked thing before mine eyes. Recently, I was talking with a person. This, this lady came into my office, and she was having dreams, and she was having all kinds of bad thoughts. And she asked me, to, to, can you be saved and, and have bad dreams and bad thoughts and evil things that come into your mind? Well, I told her that usually when you have bad dreams like that, it's because you've entertained something during the daytime. You've allowed yourself to see something that causes you to have those kinds of thoughts. And so I encourage her to do exactly what this verse says, what David said that he did. I will set no wicked thing before mine eyes. Now, there's one more point that I want to make here about this, and that is temptation becomes a sin when we act on it, when we act on it. Now, when Satan came to Eve in the garden and he tempted her, Eve saw that that tree was good for food. It was pleasing to the eyes. But at that point, it wasn't sin. There's no telling how many times that Eve passed that tree during the day and and she looked over there and she knew that that was forbidden fruit and she knew that it still looked good, but as yet she hadn't taken, she hadn't eaten of it. And so it wasn't sin. But when she reached out to that and she took it, she put it to her lips and she bit into it, that's when she committed the sin. And so when you act on a temptation, that's sin. But if you can leave it there and you don't act on it, it's not a sin yet. So don't let the devil trick you into thinking there's something wrong with you and you can't be a Christian because an evil thought comes into your head or you're tempted about something. That's one of the wiles of the devil. It's a trick that he uses to deceive you. Now, let's look at another area uh, that confuses Christians. Secondly, is it a sin to be discouraged? Now, that first one, it is not a sin to be tempted, but I have to answer differently on this one. Yes, it is a sin to be discouraged. Discouragement is a trick of the devil, and when the devil finally gets you to the place you are discouraged, then you have succumbed to one of the wiles of the devil. Now, doubt that we talked about is a big tactic that the devil uses, but discouragement is also one. uh, It's a very pervasive tool of Satan, and he has very great success at getting Christians to be discouraged. When you think about how hard it is to live a Christian life, all the things that are going on around the world, it's very difficult not to be discouraged. Now, that's not particularly the kind of discouragement I want to talk about tonight, although that discouragement is very real But the Bible tells us that there is a way to get out of that kind of discouragement. Paul explains that in Philippians 4, verse 8. He says, Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue and if there be any praise, think on these things. And in Colossians, he wrote, set your affections on things above, not on things of the earth. So the cure for that kind of discouragement is to keep on thinking that this life is not all there is. This world is not all there is. And so Paul says, if you want to get out of those kinds of discouragement, start thinking on spiritual things. Put your thoughts above the thoughts of the world. If you focus on this life and what happens here, you will always be discouraged. And that's because Christians do not live for this world. We live for the world that is to come. 
So that's a cure for worldly discouragement. But that's not where we're going to spend our time. I want to talk about the discouragement that you have in your work for Christ. And this is a very common thing among Christians. What happens to Christians is that we become weary with well-doing. We come to a place in our Christian life many times where coming to church just seems to be mundane. And so what we want to do, we want to quit. We want to sit down and watch everybody else do something. Let somebody else shoulder all the burden for a while. And whenever you get weary of well-doing, that is the devil discouraging you, and that is sin against God. Obviously, that would be sin. So here's how the devil works with this. Sometimes you, you just don't feel like you're a Christian. Now, especially if you get discouraged, you don't feel like a Christian. And that is a huge problem in the world today because there's so much concentration on feelings and emotions. Well, that puts us back into some of the discussion that we had last week if you were here. If you look at the Word of Faith movement today, 99% of what they talk about is, talk about is how do you feel about you? Be all you can be. You can do it. You can be somebody. And it's all built upon the emotions. And if it weren't for this emotional aspect, the charismatic movement and those that are involved in all of those things, that, that movement would have been dead a long time ago because they don't have any theology to go with it. There's no doctrine, doctrine that's, that's with that. So it would have gone a long time ago. Well, what does a Christian do when uh, he gets into this emotional aspect of it, that I don't feel like a Christian today, uh, I'm just, just feeling too down. What do you do in those types of days? Well, the Bible describes how to get out of that kind of discouragement as well. The first thing that you do with this is that you examine yourself in the faith. Examine yourself in the faith. Now, one thing the Scriptures never do, never anywhere, does it tell us to look for a feeling. Salvation is not a subjective thing. Salvation is objective. It's actually based on hard evidence, on things that Christ has done. And when the devil comes to you and he says, well, you're not a Christian. Christians don't feel like this. Then you say, well, salvation has nothing at all to do with a particular kind of feeling. Salvation is found only in the blood and the righteousness of Jesus Christ. The Bible teaches that justification is by faith and not by feelings. And so if you come to a time in your life that, that you feel down and, and you uh, have an emotional letdown in your Christian life and you think that you're not saved, well, it's not really an uncommon thing, but that's one of the wiles of the devil. Now, what people do, or, or, or if we did this, I should say, if, if we were to look at our lives and look at our track record as a Christian and see how we've lived our lives and what's taken place in our life, most of us would not feel like Christians. We would examine what we've done and, and see all the failures that we've had, and we'd say, well, uh, I can't be a Christian. But the truth of the matter is, your Christianity and your faith is not based in anything that you do or ever will do. It's always based on what Christ has done. So you never let the devil discourage you on the basis of feelings. Examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. Do you really trust in the soul-cleansing blood of the Lamb? And if that's where you are, if that's where your faith is, you're saved no matter what your feelings says. So Satan tricks and, and he deals with the area of feelings. The second thing that you need to do about this is, you, uh, is that examination. You examine yourself and this examination leads to confession. 
When you examine yourself, the imperfections and the failures of your life start to shine through. Those things come to light. And the examination lets you see exactly that sin that's in your life that caused you be, to be discouraged. That sin helps you find out. Or that, or that uh, sin is, that, that led to your discouragement is found out. Now, sometimes uh, people will become discouraged and they quit because, well, I, they think I don't get enough recognition. What sin would be behind that? And if you're going to examine it, what sin would be behind a feeling like that? Be the sin of pride. Exactly, exactly. It's the sin of pride. And so there's only one thing that would cause you to think that you ought to stand out and you ought to be recognized. Too much pride. You deserve better. That's a trick of the devil. So whatever it is, when you begin to examine yourself, the sin behind discouragement will be found out. Now, if you're willing to do it, if you'll put yourself in the place where you will examine your sin, then your, your confession will help you to get out of that discouragement. E- examination is a spirit-led exercise. Now, if you look at lost people, they're not examining themselves to see what kind of sins they're committing that make them miserable. And that's because they don't understand the root cause of their problems. But the case with the Christian is that we have the Spirit of God that's living in us. He's dwelling in us. And the purpose of this examination, Spirit-led examination, is to find out the cause of that, of that discouragement that we have. It's to help us get that, to get back on track where we should be. And so we confess the sins that so easily beset us, as Paul says. So let the Spirit lead you into confession, and there you'll find the end of your discouragement. Then the third thing as it relates to this, is don't judge yourself by the experience of others. And that's another thing that leads to discouragement for many Christians. They look and they see where other Christians are in their Christian lives, what they're able to do, and if they're not able to do the same, then they become discouraged by it. Now, here is really one of the things that I think is the bane of many of the fundamentalists. And uh, we, we just experienced, I can't go into the details of this, we just experienced this in the church this week of someone terribly run over and beat down by the fundamentalist movement. And if you go to uh, fundamentalist churches and colleges, many of them, you'll look around and you'll see if, the, if there's not actually a cookie-cutter a cookie mentality in those places. Everybody has to turn out the same. Everybody has to look the same. They have to fit into the same mold. And if they don't fit, they are judged to be inferior Christians. And so in order to make good little Christians out of these folks, they hand out the fundamentalist manifesto, and it has all the rules for holy and righteous living. And so sanctification there becomes the mechanical process of conformity. Well, what happens when you have, you know, 80% of the people that are able to to conform and get with the program, but unfortunately you've got 20% of the people that can't do that. I mean, uh, the others, they, through some kind of man-made methods of manipulation, they can get with the program, but there's a certain group of these folks that simply cannot conform to it. What happens to them? Well, they start to think, I'm an inferior Christian. It's true, I really am an inferior Christian. Maybe I'm not even saved at all. I just don't get it. I can't conform to what everybody else does. Now, I, I, I don't understand this many times. Why does the Bible talk about how different we are? And why does it say that we have different members of the body, we have different functions, we perform different areas of service? Why does the Bible say that we are living stones and not living bricks? I understand why it says that, because 
We are not all alike. We can't always judge our performance by what others are able to do. And so we're not living bricks because bricks are are in a pattern. They all look just alike. The Bible calls us living stones because we are all different. And what it takes for us to work together in God's church is God takes those living stones and he's the master builder and he fashions them into something that's beautiful. So we don't all have to be alike. Now, here's the thing, though. I, I, I caution you not to be complacent about this. Don't think that you don't have to strive. I do encourage you to pattern your life after good Christian people. Do like they do. But don't be discouraged when you're not as gifted as someone else is. When you, when you can't do everything that they do. I would love to sing like Bill Gaither, but I can't. I'd like to preach like Charles Spurgeon, but I can't. But what I can do is brighten the corner where I am. I can do what God has enabled me to do. And as long as I serve in that capacity, God's happy with me doing that. Don't ever let the devil discourage you by judging yourself by someone else's ability. Now, here's what you need to remember in this area. The smallest things that you do in God's service are worth doing. Now, maybe you think that this is where I am in my Christian life. I can only do small things for God. I'm never going to be that person that does that great thing. Well, don't be discouraged over that. It's a sin to be discouraged over that. Discouragement is a product of sin. So if you stop doing something for the Lord, examine yourself and find out why. When you stop serving God, something bigger has gotten in the way. And when there's something bigger in the way, what that means is something has taken the place of your service, and that is always sin. Now, lastly, we come to this one. Number three, is it a sin to worry? Now, this is going to get all of us, I think, and some of us it hurts very badly. And the answer to that question is, yes, it is a sin to worry. If you're consumed with worries, whether it's financial, whether it's for your health, whether it's for relationships, whatever that might be, if you worry about those things, it's a sin. Worry is a product of thinking that you are in control and not God. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. Concern for things is prudent. Uh, Trying to write things to get them to come out for a good outcome, that's not sinful. But when there are things that are out of your control, and you cry, and you fret, and you wring your hands over things like that, that is sinful. It reveals a lack of faith. And worry is one of the devil's tricks. It's a wile of the devil. So how do you fight off worry? How do you get rid of that? Well, number one, you have to... Properly order your priorities. Priorities must be properly ordered. Now, what am I talking about? Well, you remember the story about uh, Mary and Martha. Jesus was invited to Mary and Martha's house. And when he arrived, I suppose that he was greeted by Mary and, and asked him to sit down, I would think. And she went over and she sat by Jesus and she began to talk with him. She sat at his feet and began to have fellowship with him. Martha, though was in the kitchen. Martha was very busy. She was preparing the meal, getting ready to serve the guest, and she was getting a little upset because Mary was sitting in there with Jesus while she was doing all the work. And so she went to Jesus and she said, Lord, would you go tell Mary to get in here and help me? I need some help. And that's when Jesus said to her, Martha, Martha, thou art careful and troubled about many things. But one thing is needful, and Mary hath chosen that good part which shall not be taken away from her. Now, why would we mention this in this area? 
Did Martha have a right to be concerned about her house? Was it okay for her to be concerned about her meal and serving her guests? Well, absolutely. It was all right for her to be concerned about that. But what Jesus is teaching here is that all of those things, the house, the meal, serving the guest, all of those things are secondary issues. And those secondary issues are never intended to be the things that rule our lives. And so whether it's our family, our friends, our jobs, fun, finances, health, whatever it is, those things are not to be the center of life for Christians. The center of our lives is always Christ. And so if your contentment becomes ruled by all these other things, then it's evident that your contentment is not ruled by Christ. Now, why do you worry about these things? This is what what Jesus is trying to teach. When Christ is here, when he tells us, I will never leave you, I'll never forsake you, I'll take care of all of your needs, if this big central thing, the biggest thing in your life, the center of your life, if that thing is taken care of, why are you worried about the small stuff? And this is what Jesus is trying to teach Martha. You have to get the priorities right. And if Christ is the center, you don't worry about the peripheral issues. Then the second thing to help you get rid of worry is to understand that possibilities are not yet reality. Now, probably the biggest area of worry is about things that might happen, what could happen, but it hasn't yet happened. And people worry about it. There's no way that you can possibly influence any future event by worrying about it. And so worry is a colossal waste of time. But the devil likes to engage you in colossal waste of time because then you can't concentrate on the present. You're no good for the present when you're worried about the future. And so he clouds your mind with all those issues and you can't concentrate on spiritual things. So you don't function properly. Now... Is it a sin then? Are you committing sin? Well, it falls under the category of Jesus' things that he says specifically not to do. He says, don't do this. He says in Matthew, Take therefore no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. And then James has something to say about it. He goes a little bit further than what Jesus says. He says, tomorrow might not even ever come. What are you worried about tomorrow for? He wrote, Go to now, ye that say, Today or tomorrow we will go and touch a city and continue there a year and buy and sell and get gain. Whereas ye know not what shall be on the morrow. For what is your life? It is even as a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. So worry and anxiety are examples of lack of faith. Your health. Why do you worry about your health? And why why do you worry about that test that's coming up? Who's the great physician? If things do go badly, who's able to heal? Who's able to take care of you? If it's finances, why do you worry? Jesus said the birds don't worry. I mean, they don't go about trying to store all of their goods in barns in order to take care of the future. They're not worried about that. And then Jesus said, aren't you of more value than the birds? Doesn't your heavenly father take care of you? So why are you worried about finances? Possibilities are not yet reality. And if they do become reality, worrying about them has absolutely no effect on their outcome. So there's no need to worry about it. It's a waste of time and it's a lack of faith. And you know what the scripture says about this? Romans 14, 23 says, For whatsoever is not of faith is sin. So why worry? Now here's the third reason. Why worry? Because problems are not insurmountable. 
Don't worry, because the problems are not in, in, uh, uh, insurmountable. Why worry when, when something about something that's going to happen as if it's too big for God to handle? God has it all under control. And when you worry, you're saying that God is not in control. Things that happen are not in his hands. If something happens to me, it's not in the providence of God. And that's really the whole issue here. Everything is in the providence of God. Everything is under his control. God, God controls it all. So if something happens to you, that is a providential affair as far as God is concerned. And so why do you have a problem? What happens in that? Well, maybe God gave you a problem or it came upon you to increase your faith. Maybe God wanted to bring you to the place where you understood he really is in control. And he is the one that's going to take care of it. And so he, he's affecting you because of faith. Maybe it's because that you need to get back into your prayer life. Again, to depend upon him as you should. Maybe it's because it's chastisement. Now, we don't like to think of it that way, but maybe it is. He says, now no chastening. Hebrews says, now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. So whatever problem comes, God is always in control. Now, here's what you need to remember. This is your last statement for tonight. When the problem comes, we have the indwelling spirit to meet the challenge. I want you to listen to part of a prayer of Jeremiah. He says, Ah, Lord God, behold, thou hast made the heaven and the earth by thy great power and stretched out arm, and there is nothing too hard for thee. Thou showest loving kindness unto thousands and recompensest the iniquity of the fathers into the bosom of their children after them, the great the mighty God, the Lord of hosts is his name, great in counsel and mighty in work. For thine eyes are open upon all the ways of the sons of men. God sees it all. God knows it all. God has it all under control. And then, finally, in the indomitable words of Alfred E. Newman, who said things like, smoking helps you lose weight one lung at a time. Get that. And medical insurance is what allows people to be ill at ease. He said, what? Me worry? Don't be fooled by the tricks of the devil. It's confusion, and the devil likes to mess with your mind. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and the real dependence that we need on you. Help, help us, Lord, in that area. Help us not to be worried about things, not to be anxious about things. Lord, help us not to doubt you. And Lord, help us not to be so concerned about temptation that we don't understand that you're the one who endured it all and we can do it as well. We just ask you, Lord, that you would work in our lives, speak to our hearts, draw us close to you, strengthen us for this battle that we're in. And we'll give you the praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.